How can elite, historically privileged, and cost-restrictive independent schools be used for the greater good of society? Today on our show, Daniel Pazno and I chew on this tasty thought morsel and much more. I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are teaching tomorrow. Daniel Pazno is the head of the middle school at the Browning School in New York City and was formerly the head of outreach and public purpose at the Spence School. She is an educator who, in her own words, has a crazy high growth mindset and never stops challenging herself to new levels of excellence. In our conversation, we talk about the potential that independent schools have to create a more fair and equitable world and her progressive vision for service learning in schools. While Danielle will be the one running the school next year at Browning, she will also keep one foot in the world of teaching. So, of course, we talked about how she teaches math with habits of mind at the center of her pedagogy and what she does to have students use math to change the way they see themselves as agents in their world. It is rare to get to know someone with the level of passion and enthusiasm for teaching as Danielle, so I'm so excited to have you get to know her a little more through this episode and adore her the way that I do. There are a boatload of show notes on this one, as Danielle names and lists a number of awesome articles, resources, and programs that you most certainly should check out if something piqued your interest today. Friends, I cannot wait for you to jump right into my conversation with Danielle, so let's get to it. Danielle Pazno, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really exciting to get to chat with you because it's been a long time. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Oh, it's Absolutely, my pleasure. It's like such a treat to get to uh, have you to myself for like half an hour to talk to you about teaching. Um, so I first met you in 2013 and I was a participant at the Klingenstein Summer Institute. Um, and I want to start here because I mean that's my beginning of my journey with you, uh, but I literally cannot say enough amazing things about this program and I think that all people who are at the start of their teaching careers should know about this. So could you start just by telling us a little bit about what the Klingenstein Summer Institute is and who should consider applying? Absolutely. So I couldn't agree more with you in terms of uh, how amazing the program is. Um, and it feels like a dream every single year when I get to work there. Uh, it's a program that I wish I had done when I was an early career teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. The program's for teachers who are in year uh, years two to five of full-time teaching experience. And I know if I would have done the program during those years, I would have gotten much better at teaching much faster than, <laughs> than I uh, have been able to do on my own. And so the, the thing I think that's amazing about the program is not only that it brings together about 75 different participants from um, mostly in the United States, um, but always a really great bunch from Canada and um, <laughs> of the world. Um, but I, you know, the thing that sets it apart is that the way that the Institute is taught is in, uses the same methods that we know that we should be using in the classroom. Mm, yes. So often we do professional development that um, tells us how to teach, but doesn't actually practice that teaching in the actual um, experience of the professional development mm -hmm. and Lingenstein basically practices what it what preaches at all times. And I think that for me speaks so loudly on why it was such a transformative experience because you're in the middle of you know thinking about backwards design or and your teachers are teaching that way for you the whole time and I, and also like the teachers that are running the show are just so beyond 
transformative and inspiring and they walk the walk. Like, I mean, you're one of those people. So that's why I wanted to chat with you today. Um, and I think a testament to that is that you just started a very new role as of July 1st as the head of the middle school at the Browning School in New York City. So congratulations. Thank you. I'm in day, like my third day at work. So I'm <laughs> brand new. So do you have friends at this like day three? Do you know who your like people are that you're sitting to eat lunch with? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, of the people who are in the building in the middle of July. Uh, yes, I, I've met a few people. You've got uh, some buddies. So I, uh, something that was really amazing about uh, my first day is, is a friend of mine sent me flowers and they were sitting on my desk. And um, one of our facilities workers came by with an empty vase. Like you just oh. seen that I had flowers on my desk and knew I was new and probably didn't have something to put them in. Oh, and that that's spoke, a really good friend. Yeah, it spoke a ton about um, the ethos of this place. Yeah, that's a really kind gesture. That's a good soul. Yeah. Um, and where you're coming from, so the Browning School is an all-boys school, and where you're it coming is. from, the Spence School is an all-girls school. What are you looking forward to about teaching all boys? Or you're not teaching because you're a principal, but in that environment. Well, I'll, I'll still teach one class, actually. I'll oh, teach great. a seventh grade yeah, math class. So, um, Or here they call it Form 1 as uh, the seventh grade math class. Um, the thing I'm most excited about um, is just the energy and fun that middle school boys have um, and the excitement about uh, learning and how I think empathetic and uh, compassionate middle school boys are um, mm -hmm. if they give them the space to be so. And so I'm very excited about that. I also love how loyal boys are mm. uh, and how much they value um, uh, equity and fairness and trying to make sense of um, those really big ideas. So I think that's what excites me the most. I'm also, at times I think, um, even though we live in a, a, a patriarchy, I think that, <laughs> yeah. I think that boys are, are just as much underserved by that patriarchy. Um, mm. So I'm excited to uh, just help develop boys into the wonderful, strong, compassionate people there. And boys need good female teachers like you to help show them the way. I'm really excited that the school chose you for their principal. I think it's a really great move. Thanks. And you and your amazing wife have a boy and a girl, which is my sister calls it the million dollar family because you've got <laughs> one of each and it's like, okay, we're good. We can stop now. Um, Julius and Hazel are absolutely beyond priceless and they're just these precious little munchkins. Um, here's a question for you because I talk about this with my friends a lot. Uh, you have a boy and you have a girl. You've taught in an all-girls school. You're now in an all-boys school. Uh, as a parent, would you send your own children to single gender schools? Like, What's your stance on that personally? Yeah, so what, before I started working in um, single-sex schools, uh, 10 years ago at this point. Um, I'm not sure my beliefs on them were nearly as strong as they are now. Yeah. Um, so essentially, I I don't know where we'll send um, our children, but I would absolutely consider it a, a single sex school. Um, and the reason I would is the same actually for both of them, uh, regardless of their um, sex and gender orientation. Um, and that's that I think Single-sex schools for many kids is the place where um, it will be the safest for them to come into their own 
understanding of who they are as a boy or as a girl or mm. as maybe um, something uh, between those. And so it seems to me um, this incredibly there. I think there's many more ways to be a boy in a yeah. boys than there are to be a boy in a co-ed school. Um, and so I really value the freedom it gives boys to figure out who they are and to explore all the various ways there are to, to be a boy um, and to be valued in that, um, in their boyness. Yeah, I've actually, I like the way that you're articulating that because I've thought about that a lot. Like somebody has to be the choir geek in an all boys school and somebody has to be super into the violin in an all boys school and that those... I guess those activities that in a co-ed school might get more traditionally labeled as masculine or feminine in an all girls or an all boys school, you just, yeah, like you're exactly right that you can be that, that girl who's super into hockey and no one bats an eye. Um, yeah. I mean, just one, one quick example of that is that on my interview here at Browning, I had lunch with some, some middle school boys and, and um, one of the boys had just finished the school play and I asked him what his role was and he said, oh, is Mrs. Jenkins. Yeah, I was like, that's so great because in a <laughs> school, they wouldn't have never they would have never considered um, a boy to play um, uh, the role of a woman. Yeah, and I just love that it opens up possibilities for oh, let me explore all the ways there are to exist in this world. And I'm I'm gonna bet that the way that he said oh I was Mrs. Jenkins wasn't at all like oh like I got a crappy part I had to play like the girl oh but it was just like oh, that was my part like it yeah. was probably a really awesome part and I was awesome at it and that's actually I think I don't know because I haven't taught in an all-boys school but it, you might get a little bit more space to just have a wider expression I like how you said that yeah I think that's right yeah okay um so your role that you had at Spence I just want to touch on because I think it's kind of the most amazing title and I don't <laughs> I'm curious like if you came up with that role because you were the director of outreach and public purpose yeah. and did you did that role exist before or did you create that title? Because it's pretty amazing. I wish I had created that title, but no, my amazing uh, head of school at, at the Spence School, Bodie Brizendine, she was the one who created that title. And let's see, this is she's just beginning her 12th year at Spence and I think she created it her second year there. So it's been, um, it's been a role at, at Spence for a while. Um, I was the third person to, to hold it. Um, and it really speaks to not only Bodhi's commitment to making sure um, our, our private schools um, are forces of good for um, not just our students, but also the, the community we live in and the other um, schools we have near us, um, but also to Clara Spence, who was the founder of the Spence School 125 years ago. Um, her, one of her, I mean, she was like a radical woman for starting a, a girls' school in New mm -hmm. York City. And she is, oh, if you read her speeches and um, her thoughts on education, she was always about uh, students being, having a purpose that was beyond themselves. Yeah. And so that's, um, it was a really fun role uh, to get to be in. Um, and I got to know a bunch of other nonprofits and schools in New York City um, throughout my, my time doing it. I can tell you a little bit more about what we did if that would be. Yes, please. I, I mean, I think I'm also just, probably will get sandwiched into this question, but what does public purpose mean in your school or at your former school? Yeah, I think um, for me it means that when we build a purpose for ourselves that's larger than ourselves and that includes um, 
caring about the well-being of others and serving others, that we that it's a way to acknowledge the human humanity in ourselves and the, the humanity in others. And mm. it's one of the only ways we we are able to humanize ourselves in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's kind of my definition of what a public purpose is, is how can I um, have a personal mission that fulfills me, but also is of consequence to the world. Oh, and that's, you know, we have, we teach in worlds where there is such privilege, where there is such status, and not everyone owns that. But what do you do with that? And I, you know, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are going to be um, teaching in independent schools, primarily in Ontario. But mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, what do you think many independent schools are, I don't want to say getting wrong, because I feel like that's kind of have a negative connotation. But yeah. where do you think many independent schools are getting stuck with ser- service learning? And how do you think we can transform that to become more about social justice and equity amongst all schools and all young people? Yeah, um, there's a few re- few places I think we're getting stuck. One is that um, our schools, our private schools, have built a really individualistic um, uh, achievement-based culture. What do you and mean by that? Like individualistic? Break yeah. that down a little bit. Yeah. So what I mean by that is that... Um, for a lot of our students, their primary purpose at this stage in their life is to get into the right college. Yeah. Um, and so that's become their actually their reason for existing and mm-hmm. the marker of whether or not their life has been a waste or successful up until this point. And so when that is your main marker of success or of leading um, a good life, because I think a lot of them would say that if they get into the right college, that would be a good life. Um, the, the, the issue with that is that it's it's too wobbly of a... Um, <laughs> a credential or experience to, mm. to rest your self-worth on. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that we've encouraged this culture is that our schools do thrive, um, at least in the ones I've worked in in um, the United States, they've, they've thrived off of their college acceptance list. And so, um, meaning more families want to come to the school if there's more of an option that their child will get into the college that the, the family hopes for. And you can see that through evidence of just um, the most often linked to um, page on a school's website um, after people go to admissions is the is often where the school lists their um, college admissions or college acceptance list. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I think we've kind of all bought into this this culture of wanting to succeed. And I understand that. Like, I want to succeed. I want to feel like I'm always stretching and growing. Um, but I don't want it to be, uh, that success is defined in one really narrow, um, exclusive way. Mm -hmm. And so, um, that's what I mean by (laughs) an individualistic, uh, driven culture is one that's, um, highly dominated by the college admissions process. Got it. So what are we getting wrong with service learning? (laughs) Sorry, we went on a bit of a tangent there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so the point of service learning is that, uh, I mean, we have to find a deeper purpose for our lives than um, simply having the right things on one's resume. And uh, my personal experience with service is that I've felt the most alive when I've been engaged in work where I deeply care about the well-being of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't always have to be through like a volunteer-based experience. Um, it has been many times, but like my my professional job that I get 
paid for um, feels that way as, as well. Um, or like Camp but, Viva, like you volunteered at Camp Viva yes. for many summers. And yes. are you going back this summer? Or are you returning? Camp Viva, I, I'm not returning to this summer. It's one of my favorite um, favorite places. Uh, even my new <laughs> new job, I'm not going to go back this summer, but it's uh, an amazing place. And I really, it's at Camp Viva, which is a, a camp that's for families um, infected and affected by HIV AIDS. Um, it's there that I realized that service to others is both selfish and selfless mm. because I was getting so much out of that experience of volunteering. I mean, it, it in, in a way like kind of broke my heart to pieces and then built it back together again, all within one week, the first year I, I worked there. Um, and I realized like I wasn't living a full life like I thought I was. And it wasn't until I put my myself um, with other people that I'm often not proximate to um, that I had the experience to see that I didn't I didn't understand joy the way that the the um, my campers understood joy <gasps> and their joy was so much fuller than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was really life changing for me. And I know that my work there also really impacted their lives. It was for, for a lot of I worked with the um, teen group for a lot of them. It was the only week out of the city that they got on a lake um, in a place where they could do stuff that they wouldn't get to do otherwise, like um, high reps courses and um, like sewing in a pool and things like that. Yeah. So, huh, I mean, how can schools, especially independent schools with a lot of resources and a lot of um, students who, you know, maybe aren't making authentic connections with others outside of their own bubbles, yeah. How could those kinds of schools move towards a more progressive model of social justice that could actually, or service learning that could actually get towards social justice? Yeah. So the first thing that we did at Spence was we built a, um, a document um, called Our Purpose in Our Community. Um, and it's the 12 enduring understandings we hold about service, these 12 truths that we think... Um, exist about what it means to serve. And we built those off of misunderstandings we felt like our community held. Um, so backwards design. I love this so much. Yeah. This is like Wiggins and McTie all the way. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly uh, <laughs> exactly where it came from. So what do we what do we want to teach and then how are we going to teach it? And so we came up with these 12 ideas that are awesome. Like I, I, I highly recommend that go onto the website and, and take a look at them because they're on the Spence School website. Um, under the um, Outreach and Public Purpose tab. Um, but what they, they did is they gave us a real mission for for doing this type of work. Um, and it also connected all of our service work to our equity work. So Spence is a, a school that cares deeply about um, creating equity and being a school that's um, for and about equity. And we've specifically focused on race um, pretty deeply for the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that we included um, in the enduring understandings. For so one of the understandings is that race matters. Um, and the reason <sighs> I think it's important for service work to be connected to our equity work is that um, the way that service work often goes south is when we inadvertently set up the very hierarchies of power that we say that we're trying to dismantle through the work. Um, and that often happens just from being ignorant about what we're doing. Can you um, give an example of what that yeah. might look like? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a great relationship with um, New York Common Pantry, which is an awesome nonprofit in New York City that serves many, many people who are both 
both housed and homeless. Um, and for those, they run a, a, a you know, free dinner, uh, free dinner service three nights a week. And we would take our students in um, to go serve. And lined up on the street are the people who are about to, you know, to be fed dinner. And the vast majority of those people like, weren't people of color. And so if we're not exploring how a society sets up a structure where the only people in line for a free meal are people of color, then we leave it to the students to create that narrative on their own. Um, and it's often, oftentimes they create a narrative that's simply not true. And mm -hmm. so it's a narrative based on stereotypes and based on misunderstandings of power um, and how um, uh, how cultures of power um, kind of run our society. Um, and so what we had to do is before we brought students in, we had to do work with them on um, how has racism played out in the United States? Uh, what is our history with race and what is um, what are the structures in society and in our um, kind of political system that m ensure that those inequities exist still and aren't, um, aren't fixed? And so it's that type of work so that they're going in with a sense, a better sense of why hunger, like why in New York City does hunger even exist? That's ridiculous mm -hmm. that we can have people who are hungry in the city, um, given our, uh, given the amount of wealth in the city and given how much um, access we have to food. Um, so it looks like that. It looks like doing that type of equity work alongside um, the actual volunteering. Uh, we also tried to get our students um, to work with clients once they had um, developed the skills that they needed to be able to do so. Yeah. So it would be like inappropriate for um, probably a, a, a young kid, like a kindergartner, to be working with clients um, of New York Common Pantry uh, simply because they um, probably can't yet understand some of the uh, some of the like racism that's existent exists in our society, at least not, not on a kind of a structural level. Um, and so it was once kids had been volunteering there for seven years. So once they're in sixth or seventh grade is when they started being able to work with clients. And I think that was a really transformative uh, move. Uh, basically what they did is they would take um, for those clients who are um, housed. So they have a house, but they don't have make enough money to provide food through the end of the month. Um, they would get to pick, groceries out every two weeks from the pantry mm -hmm. and our students would sit with them and ideally in the in the client's target language which is usually Spanish um, um, or um, Mandarin um, would help them place their order so they could get the food that, that they wanted um, and I think that was an important transition for our students to actually be working with um, people and connecting on that level. I think that's so important it's um, like I love how you're articulating that, that it's really about marrying those two pieces together and that they're not separate. And I, I'm making an assumption here that it's not just the students who are doing this service work that are getting that kind of an education, that it's pervasive throughout your entire school culture. So that you know, these ideas about like systemic racism or anti-oppression, they're woven in through almost every experience that your students are doing. Is that an accurate assumption? That is, and it's taken us a long time to get there. So it started with, again, the great leadership of our head of school, um, Bodhi. She is the one who like, had the vision to to truly try to create an equitable school, one that has, um, you know, a school that has a very elite standing in, in the city. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you know has ha maybe hasn't always had this at the forefront. Um, and so it was her starting with the admin team. Like she really uh, deeply got the admin team into this work and trained in this work. Mm -hmm. um, and then it went to kind of like the next level of um, admin, like deans and things like that. Yeah. And then finally to faculty. Um, I see, yeah, and I see American schools are so much further ahead than many of the independent schools in Canada in this regard. And, you know, there's obviously varying reasons behind that. And we have so much to learn from the work that you guys are doing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it's necessary work. I think there are a lot of schools in New York City who are, are who are really w waking up to um, that they that we can't be excellent with without addressing this work. I mean, we um, it's it's that critical to um, to providing an equitable and excellent education for our students. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier on that you are teaching one class in addition yeah. to being the principal of the middle school. And I also see that as something as uniquely American. I don't see that happening as often in the Canadian independent schools. And, you know, since I, since I went to Klingenstein, I was sort of immersed in many other American teachers and hearing about the models that the American independent schools have. I just can't say enough about how important I think it is for somebody who's running the middle school to be teaching a class. Um, I'm sure you think it's like as common as bread and butter. You're like, well, of course, if I'm, you know, mentoring teachers, I should know what their world is. Yeah. Uh, but you're still going to be in the classroom next year, which is so important. Um, I would love you to just to touch on a little bit about what are mathematical habits of mind and what does that look like in your teaching? Because I've heard of habits of mind, but I'm super curious on like, what does that look like in a math classroom yeah. um, and specifically in your math classroom? Yeah. Um, so in my math classroom, um, for the last five or six years at, at Spence, I was teaching um, a, all of our classes are taught using a, a problem uh based model where, and it's, it's a seminar format where the students run the discussion on the problems. And I'm there to at times ask questions and sometimes formalize ideas when I feel like we're getting to a point where we really um, need to get say an accurate definition down or, um, or really kind of formalize the concept. Um, so what, so what that means in terms of what I think mathematical habits of mine are and how I think students best learn math is that, um, one, we should be a problem, like mathematics classes should be all about problem solving and they should, we should be giving kids um, problems that they don't already know how to solve. So uh, I don't know what your math education was like, but mine was um, full of a lot of problems that where I could do my homework and get the right answer on every single problem um, most nights. Mm -hmm. Or there was the answer in the back of the math textbook that I could look up and be like, yep, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Or, or like I would hit a problem and maybe I don't know how to do it, but then it'd say, see exercise three on page 72. <laughs> and I'd go, I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll, I, just, I just insert the numbers into this formula and get the answer. It's just so boring and, and pointless, like mm -hmm. honestly just pointless. Um, and so we should be giving uh, kids problems that um, – have like really low floors, easy to enter, but high ceilings, like really um, uh, take a lot of time and um, effort to complete. And uh, and we should, um, like the class should be built off of uh, leaving space and time for student thinking and grappling with problems. Mm -hmm. So the way that looks um, 
or the way it's going to look this next year in, in, in my classroom is I'm going to be using a lot of um, Joe Bowler's problems. She's a uh, professor at Stanford, and she's done amazing work on um, helping teachers better understand how to teach mathematics. And she has these beautiful problems where um, on the surface they seem really kind of uh, pointless and easy, but they're like endlessly difficult. Uh, so an example of one is she has a four fours problem where you have, you're given four fours. You have to use all the fours for every single part of the problem. Um, and you have to create using the operations of, or using any mathematical operation, you have to create the numbers one through 20. So you have to find a way to connect four fours using mathematical operations that, um, equals then one. And then you have to do it at equals two. Yeah. Um, and it's such a great fun problem. I was gonna say, it sounds actually really fun. Like it's not, but endlessly complicated. (laughs) Yeah, it's gonna be, it's a great problem. I've tried it before. And the awesome thing about this, this is the punchline. So if anyone was gonna try it, hit pause now. Spoiler alert. (laughs) The punchline is that it's it's also um, an example of uh, what some people call just in time teaching. And that you don't teach anything until the exact moment that a student that the students need mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. and something that's um, cool about that problem is that there's some numbers that you can't get to with the operations that often um, middle school students know, which are <sighs> addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Mm-hmm. So it opens this idea of are there other operations um, or are there other ways of um, other notation we can use um, to do an operation on um, uh, numbers. Oh, I love that. That's so yeah. cool. I think about like just off the top of my head, how that might also apply to English. Like, oh, we have this problem. We don't know the solution to it yet. How how could we go about figuring it out? Oh, you don't know how to use a semicolon. Perfect time to teach you the semicolon. Like, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, a more beautiful way to like articulate something and like, or to write something and just in time it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that. that. The other thing I love about teaching um, mathematics is that it's such, math is such a um, a tool for equity in our world. And so giving kids a sense of how to um, think quantitatively about the world and then use that to test ideas or to test arguments that they're hearing from other people um, to see if they um, hold water, I think is a, a really mm. fun and important part of the, the classroom. Um, and getting them comfortable with, with being someone who thinks um, about the world, world quantitatively. Um, and that, that's something like, I don't know why I didn't learn that growing up. Um, I really thought math was just this isolated subjects that I was happy with, like, <laughs> I became a math teacher, um, but it had no real bearing on my lived experience, hmm. and I want uh, my math class to have, uh, like, I want it to change the way their brains work, and I want it to change um, the way they see themselves as agents in the world. So your ideal math student, when they have graduated from your school and they go off into the world, what are, you know, like, the competencies or the habits or the... Um, yeah. Yeah, who are they as a human in the world? Yeah, yeah. So something that they'll do is they will um, they'll never shy away from a problem just mm-hmm. because they don't know how to start it. Like mm-hmm. they'll have all these tools for knowing how to start problems. So a good example is one of my students um, who just graduated, is off to off to college. Um, when she was in middle school, her parents took her on like a flight somewhere, and the um, the uh, captain, I guess, <laughs> the airline pilot, <laughs> got on on. Uh, on the loudspeaker and and said you know we'll be flying at this altitude and you know such and such such and then asked a question like how much I don't know fuel we use <laughs> I, I don't actually know what it was because I wasn't there 
And this kid immediately started to work on the problem. And I love that. Like the, the fact that, that she thought, I don't know how to solve this problem, but I'm going to try. And, um, that's the type of thing. Like I, that's what I want everyone to, to do to just like try it out and see how much fun they can have with it. And if they get bored with that, stop. But, um, to be ones who, to be people who boldly, um, try to solve things, um, and try to figure things out. So that's something, um, I want, uh, joyful problem solvers who yeah. accept challenges. Uh, I want students who have a growth mindset about um, their ability to understand math on deep levels, so that, that even after their middle and high school careers, um, they have the sense that they're still growing in their uh, ability to reason mathematically, and they, they seek out, um, they don't avoid uh, ways to grow in that, they actually seek them out. Um, and I want them to be able to uh, read the, the newspaper or read <laughs> like anything online and to be able to ask themselves questions about it that um, pertain to a quantitative understanding. So um, it, think something as simple as, does that statistic make sense? Um, why or why not? What I think is just beyond profound is that you so clearly embody all of those things in your life right now and that your students are so lucky to have you because you teach who you are. Like what people who are listening to you don't know is that you're also a musician. You wrote mm -hmm. a novel while you had a small infant. Like that's insane. Um, and you also started the teaching institute at Spence, which, you know, like you're just busy running a school and teaching and being an inspiring leader. And you think to yourself, oh, I think I'm just going to like start an institute for teachers. Um, number one, you are obviously like a powerhouse and number two like how did you how did you come up with that idea and like how did you start it okay so um so the teaching institute uh <laughs> was this dream that my friend eric Dollar and i had so eric is um the director of teaching and learning at at spence and he's also one of my very dear friends and he was the head of the math department before that so he and i worked closely together for for many years and um, we both love teaching, are absolutely obsessed with teaching, and but we're maybe even more obsessed with the idea of getting better at it mm -hmm. um, because we think it's so hard. <laughs> and to me, Eric is one of the most phenomenal teachers I've ever seen in the classroom, and I love that he thinks it's hard and that, um, like, he knows he's good, but he also knows that he could be so much better mm -hmm. um, than, he, than he is. And so we both have this um, obsession with wanting to get better at teaching and wanting to help other people to get better at teaching and wanting there not to be um, fear around that. Mm -hmm. So let me go into that a little bit because it will help explain how we organize the institute. Yes, please. So teaching, I think, is highly personal um, because we're working with real human beings um, and they're putting a lot of they're giving us a lot of emotion. So not only are we dealing with people's emotions all day long of like young, impressionable kids, um, but we're also trying to do something that on one hand we do really easily, like we love to learn, humans love to learn, but we also learn incorrectly all the time. Oh. So we're trying, to, we're trying to teach them how to learn what we know to, to be true about the world correctly. <laughs> and that's a, a really hard thing to do. Um, and so I feel like there's a lot of, um, that teachers often hold a lot of fear around being exposed as frauds. Oh, <laughs> totally. Like we all have 
major imposter syndromes, like collectively. Yeah. Yes. And that um, we, we feel like kind of everyone else gets it. And if people know that we don't get it or that we're not causing the learning we wish we were causing in our classroom, that um, like anything could happen from losing our jobs to, um, you know, having a complete breakdown, you know, yeah. like I just think teaching is, beca- is a really personal um, experience and we don't help it by, we don't help um, teachers get better because we often silo teaching. So we, we leave teachers alone in their classrooms um, and I think oftentimes don't uh, try to teach in community with each other. Yeah. Um, so the, so one thing that Eric and I have found that's really helped us improve our practice is videotaping our classes <laughs> and then watching them with each other and using a protocol to, or various protocols to um, focus on say a two minute clip of a classroom to try to better understand what happened. Um, I learned so much about my teaching from, from doing this, even though it has never gotten easier to do it. Like I still get nervous every single time um, I sit down to watch film of me teaching. Um, but the, the, what it does for my teaching is so good that it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so we believe that um, teachers can grow at every stage of their career, um, but we believe that they can't do so in isolation, that they um, must do so in community with other people and by making their teaching visible. Yeah. So we decided to, just like we try to make students thinking visible um, so that we can understand what they don't understand and disrupt those misconceptions and, fill them with um, true understanding. Um, that's uh, kind of what we want to do with the Teaching Institute. We want mm-hmm. teachers to see things that they haven't seen before in their teaching and um, and learn how to improve on it. Um, and we also want them to see things in their teaching that they didn't know they were great at, yeah. now know that they're great at. Um, and it's kind of built off of Atul Gawande's um, article that he wrote in The New Yorker, gosh, maybe seven years ago at this point, called Personal Best. Whereas a top surgeon, um, he was watching a tennis match and he realized even professional tennis players have coaches. Like mm-hmm. why don't surgeons have coaches? I mean, they're, they're, they're dealing with life and death stuff. Like why aren't they constantly in kind of an apprenticeship mode? Mm. Um, and that really spoke to me in terms of teaching and that we should all be being a, like ha- should be um, growing in that way uh, all the time. We should have coaches. We should have people who yeah. are giving us feedback on, on our teaching in a way that's loving and um, respects us as teachers and that helps us get better. So we built the Teaching Institute at Spence um, for teachers with uh, 10 plus years teaching experience um, and they can they apply in the fall and we accept a group um, probably uh, late winter to come for a week during the summer to New York City and um, we asked them to submit, once they're accepted into the program, to submit two hours of classroom time and them teaching. Wow. And um, Eric and I watch it and we pick a few clips for each person and we spend um, the week of the Institute uh, learning how to explore um, film of teachers teaching using various protocols that he and I wrote. Um, and in order to do that, we have to get the teachers uh, to be comfortable with the vulnerability that comes with that. Mm. It's very scary even for, I mean, we have teachers who have been teaching for 35 plus years who are seen as um, the like top teacher in their schools. And that this is still a very difficult thing for them to do. So the Institute primarily at first is built on um, 
how can we explore what it means to be vulnerable as a teacher mm. and how to model that vulnerability. So Eric and I always start with our own clips of our, um, our own teaching and run protocols on those first so people can see that first. Um, and then um, we go from there. And it's so amazing. I can't, I mean, in many ways, I'm like floored that that I was a part of creating this because I <laughs> like how beautiful it is. Um, and, you know, like, I, I think most teachers really want to get better. So it's this perfect place to, to do it. So I don't have 10 years of teaching experience yet, but you um, can pretty much guarantee that I will be sending my application as soon as I hit that 10 year mark, because it sounds like equal parts terrifying to have, you know, people look at two hours worth of my teaching, but yeah. just so it's like that vulnerability that I know would force all of us to grow into like you said, like just see your strengths through somebody else's eyes and to get that really clear, specific feedback. Like that sounds so important. Yeah. There's a teacher, we, Eric and I wrote an article for um, independent school magazine. I, I read it. It's really yeah. good. Oh, uh, um, thank you. <laughs> uh, and in there, there's a little case study of one participant and her experience of seeing something that she thought she was good at and she was good at it but there was one piece that was just slightly off. And she realized that through this whole experience. Mm -hmm. And she was able to like deepen her understanding of something that she was really good at and then make it even better. It was very cool. Yeah, I, I used to. So I don't know if you know Patty McDonald, but she was our principal of our junior school. And she was a the junior teacher at Klingenstein um, before Richard Messina came. Oh, so yeah. Patty McDonald had us filming our classes. But since moving into the middle school, I haven't done it. And just hearing you speak about it just refreshes for me how, how critical it is, even if I'm the only one who looks at it. So thank you. I'm going to put that into practice next year. Yeah. And if you next time we meet up, if you want to do a protocol with me, we can oh my swap. God. That's like <laughs> my teaching geek dream. You are like speaking my language, Pazno. I'm really excited. <laughs> um, even though you're at Browning, are you still going to be running this program moving forward in the summer at Spence? Yeah. My, my new head of school, John Boddy, um, who, who, although I don't know him all that well, I know he's a phenomenal leader and head, um, was really, uh, Gracious in saying that, um, yes, I should continue uh, that so work, um, which has been fantastic. So, yeah, we'll be meeting with our uh, our new cohort this year, August 6th. Great. And if you take applications in the fall, um, that's probably around when this podcast will be listened to by real people. So I'll put the application in the show notes. So people who have been teaching longer than I have, they can apply <laughs> and uh, I, they can say that I sent you there. Thanks so much. Um, okay, so we're going to close up today with a ticket out the door because we're teachers and we love doing tickets out the door to send people off into the world. Um, and the idea behind the ticket out the door is it is just like rapid fire questions that you don't have to think too hard about, but they're fun and they just end on a sweet note. So are you ready for the ticket out the door? So ready for this. Okay, let's do it. If you weren't a teacher, what would you be? A writer. Love it. Uh, who's your favorite edu celebrity? Uh, Dylan Williams. Oh, I don't even know who Dylan Williams is. Um, he's an educationalist from uh, Great Britain. Yes. Okay. I'll go look him up. Uh, yeah. What was your favorite school snack as a child? Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, snackables. Do you remember those? Yes. Those are so terrible. I love them. Really, um, I mean, I, I, I cringe to say that out loud, but yeah. Uh, you live in New York City, so what was your best New York City celebrity sighting? Oh, gosh. Um, 
probably oh it's so it's that's hard to say i've had it's really good ones for many different i want to say so many different people for many different reasons it's rapid fire just list them off yeah right um susan sarandon oh i thought you're gonna go with tina fey but i also Tina Fey was you're right you know tina fey i mean she made me feel so good about my child yeah because she commented on hazel right she did. She said how cute she was. I was like, ah, oh, thank you. That's like the ultimate compliment. Like, it's not like basically Tina Fey is saying you're amazing. Like, that's really what that is. I made her. I went to, ran into Rachel Dratch on the street and like, she's like super minor. And I was like, oh my God, that's Rachel Dratch. And like, she was like pushing her kids in the stroller. And I'm, yeah, that was, that's mine. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. If you were a superhero, what superhero would you be? Oh, does it have to be a real one or can I make up? Yeah, either. I would be um, like generosity lady or something. I'd just just be someone who goes around um, who can instantly understand what someone needs and then has the power to give it to them. I love it. Uh, (laughs) What was your um, favorite gift given to you as a teacher? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, something that was really special that there's been many things I, um, that kids have given me. Mo- mostly it's just been letters that they've written me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that my uh, leadership group that um, I just finished teaching because I, I left Spence, they gave me a mason jar full of, these are all kids who've grown up in New York City. Full, it was a mason jar full of little strips of paper where they wrote out the things that they love to do growing up in New York mm-hmm. and put them in there. And, and so I'm just supposed to, you know, reach in, pull one out and it'll give us an activity um, for the day for Julius and Hazel. I love it. I love okay. it. Yeah. What to you is the future of learning? Oh, um, I think it's just more happiness and learning. Like I think we're at a, a place where we're realizing how to give um, humanity and purpose back to, to kids Uh, and, um, I think the, the future of it is, uh, reconnecting, um, on that level. And it's, it's not that I don't, um, (laughs) believe in like all the amazing like tech advances that are happening or or things like that. I really believe in the connection between humans. Mm. Um, and so um, it's always the next level for me. Speaking of which, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with me and to all the people listening today. It is so, like, it's just such a pleasure to get to chat with you. And it just reminds me of how incredible of a human you are, Danielle. Thank you, Celeste. I feel the same way about you. And I'm still waiting for the day that we work in the same school. I know. So now that you're the head of the principal, the principal of the middle school, uh, you know, I think you've got a really good way to make a case for (laughs) needing to bring in my expertise to your school somehow. I think immigration would totally go for it right now. Now is not a weird time at all to immigrate to the United States. It's a perfect time. We always love Canada. Yeah, I don't know about that right now. (laughs) I don't know about that right now. I'm really sorry. But maybe in like hopefully another two years, things will change. Let me speak from an eye perspective. I always love Canada. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And you. So thank you so much. And I I love what you're always doing with with your career, all the cool things you're doing. And um, you always have the, the... the the best um, next idea. Mm, Thank you. My heart, my heart smiles to you. Thank you so much, Danielle Pazno, for taking the time out from your first week in your new role to share your thoughts on teaching and learning with all of us today. 
If you are now itching to apply to the Teaching Institute with Danielle or the Klingenstein Summer Program through Columbia University, do check out the show notes to find out more. And if you're loving this podcast and wondering how you got so lucky to have amazing professional development just appear in your ears every week, do me a huge favor by rating the show on whatever platform you are finding this podcast. Your positive ratings and reviews help other teachers get inspired by people like Danielle, and we can share these ideas with more cool people like you. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep growing, and remember, we are teaching tomorrow.